What is up, my powerful person? Welcome to the Be Powerful Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Powell. This is the second episode of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed the first episode. Today I have my good buddy, Jack Staub, on the podcast. He is uh, a friend of mine that I met at a treatment center out in a drug and alcohol treatment center out in Santa Cruz, California, seven years ago. And uh, since then, him and I have stayed in contact. We both live here in Austin, Texas. We do recovery together. We work out together. We get to spend a lot of time together. And I'm super grateful that we have stayed in touch. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce Jack Staub. Play up. My man. How's Glad it going? Here, Brian. Going great, man. How are you? Really good, dude. It's good to see your beautiful face. Thanks, brother. So, yeah, I think uh, for my listeners, I wanna I wanna talk about uh, addiction and kind of what your past of addiction has looked like, kind of what you've learned from it, what your life looks like now as a result of all of your experiences in recovery and addiction. So I want to start out with asking you, where did it all start? Like when, when did you start to struggle with addiction? I would say definitely in college, it became a thing. I remember walking around Auburn's campus and, you know, I hadn't been to class in weeks and I'm going to try and save some deal at some class and just not, you know, fail that class, had to do something last minute. And each time I would have to do that, I remember being on campus and just feeling completely alone and just looking at this sea of what I took as productive, normal college students who were doing things with their lives and they didn't have this thing going on that was totally the boss and running their life, you know? Um, and back in those days, this was 2010, 2011. Around then, it was, uh, you know, the Oxycontin days, Oxycontin 80s and Dilatids and Opanas and Roxies and all that stuff. And I was in Alabama, so it was just right down the street, so to say, from, you know, the Florida pill mills and all that, which I never went and did that, but that's clearly where all of that stuff was coming from. So for the listener when he's talking about you know these different drugs and stuff basically these are all uh drugs in the opiate painkiller family similar to heroin um you know all the drugs that he just mentioned are all opiates so just for clarification go yeah, ahead Jack. All, all morphine derivatives you know that was what uh Ended up being my drug of choice or just favorite flavor, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, I had a major phase with everything from the first time I took a sip of beer. You know, anything that took me to that place, the route's a little different, but we're going to the same place. You know, I was an aggressive party animal, not in the sense that I would start a fight or anything like that. I was actually a very fun-loving, peaceful person, still am, but my just the whole drive of my life force became getting, obtaining, using drugs and alcohol for, I don't know, roughly 15, 16 years. 
Yeah. So your addiction started in college? In college is when it started to be apparent that this was going to be a big deal and an issue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you were growing up, like in high school and stuff, did you use drugs kind of like recreationally and and they just didn't seem to be a problem? Or were you not even really using drugs yet? Not even really using drugs. I smoked pot in ninth grade a bunch. Mm-hmm. In Halloween of my sophomore year, my dad, they got a truancy letter from Midland High. And mm-hmm. um, my dad was like, are you smoking pot? And I was like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so he started, he's a doctor. He could have me pee in a cup and just take it to the office or the hospital with him whenever he wanted. So he started drug testing me. And then I just completely quit smoking pot until I was a senior in high school. But in that time in between, I truly fell in love with drinking cheap whiskey. Like, oh, this is this is great. Like, I had no qualms not smoking pot because I was just, you know, partying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you feel like it kind of started with drinking? Um, like the just the addictive nature of things. Mm-hmm. Substance-wise, the drinking and pot were equal. Um but probably started taking a little more flight with alcohol. Yeah. But I I think I was, you know, I didn't fall into a certain set of circumstances or feel that I'm a victim of Purdue pharma or any of that shit. You know, a lot of people are, and that's unfortunate, but I am 100% confident that I was born one of those people that like, we're doing this, you know, it's all or nothing. And it was that way as long as I can remember, you know, Um, ding dong, ditching fireworks, somebody's dad's playboys, whatever, whatever you got, like we're fucking doing this, you know? Um, Yeah. (laughs) I can relate to that big time. Like when I was um, in like fourth grade, dude, was when we started just vandalizing stuff and toilet papering houses and Oh yeah. Ding dong ditching and pool hopping, looking at porn like excessively and um dude just all of it you know and yeah i feel like it's kind of uh it's uh you know when they say that that people some people have addictive personalities there's a lot of truth to that what would you say your experience with that is as far as like maybe behaviors before you even became addicted to drugs and alcohol yeah i mean exactly what we were just saying um you know, jumping off a roof into a pool, onto a trampoline, whatever's going to get that extra degree of dopamine and serotonin, whatever the hell's going on in the brain, whatever I could do physically or mentally consume with my eyes, ears, mouth, whatever, body, I, I was un, un, unknowingly just completely all in. Um, but, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this later, I, you know, it took a hell of a lot of painful, tragic situations and a long time for me to realize the wake of my actions with family, friends, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends, their parents. You know, a lot of people had to feel a lot of fear and a lot of pain. And then finally me acknowledging that this isn't working. Not only is it not working, I can't stop doing it when it's not working. To get on a spiritual path, um, where my life, I have to take a much deeper look at things. I have to really settle into the being of what it means to be a human being 
why are we here? I might not know that, but every day of my life is a mission to find that out, you know, becoming a man and an adult who's capable of being successful in whatever he chooses to do is it, it, it was a given. It should have been a given for me, you know, where I came from, all of my friends, you know, my family, college, education, fraternities, all that shit. It kind of should have been the next logical thing to happen, but, but it wasn't, you know, I had this other driving force that I had no idea. I could not comprehend how vastly powerful and big that is. So yeah, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. I definitely like to circle back to that and talking about kind of how, like you were saying, you feel like you you are always seeking a understanding of your purpose, what you are, what life is, and like really kind of struggling with that whole just how how addicts and alcoholics we kind of struggle like. We're a little different than others in the sense that that we really have to really understand who and what we are in order to be okay, right? Does that make sense? Or does yeah, that yeah, of, exactly. Yeah. And how what I was getting at was, you know, instead of it just being the next thing I do, you know, college, grad school, job, career, all that shit, that I seemingly see other people just kind of like a row of dominoes in a positive way. Mm -hmm. um, it just kind of happens. It's the next thing. There was this massive hurdle that I, I don't feel I have to get over in the sense that I wish I could be using drugs and alcohol, but a feeling of being late to the game, uh, constant reminding myself of, you no, know, this is the path. This is what God chose for me and how I can look at that in a fortunate way and say, you know, I have to take a deeper look at my life in every sense of the word to be able to pull this thing off. And I'm very grateful for that, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah, dude, I can relate as far as feeling sorry for myself for, you know, 10 years that I was recklessly using drugs and alcohol and just digging my hole deeper and deeper and really not, not getting anywhere, not, not getting anywhere worthwhile i guess you could say you know but kind of looking back at it i can definitely see that everything has happened for a reason and has helped make me the person that i am today and for that i'm super grateful and i'm kind of right in that same boat where i'm really having to look deep into everything and realize like okay this is what god chose for me like i don't believe that god was like here I'm, you know, I, I made you to do meth and heroin and you're going to fuck your whole life up. And that's, that's your purpose. No, I firmly believe that, you know, we chose to use drugs and alcohol and now God's got to find a way to make glory out of it. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So circling back to talking about your addiction, I do want to, I do want to dive into a little bit of kind of what it looked like, where it started how it progressed and uh, then kind of get into what getting sober has looked like for you. Okay. So as we mentioned in high school, I, you know, drank more than anybody loved it. Could out drink whoever, you know, shotgunning beers, chugging whiskey, whatever, yada, yada, yada. 
when I went to college, I very much took that attitude with me. I was so gung ho about joining a fraternity. You know, I basically, I went to school to party and I would take care of academic stuff just so I could stay there. Mm -hmm. It became a game of how do I get this done good enough to where I can stay here? And, you know, I never miraculously, I never failed out of school. Um, <laughs> I was a good enough bullshitter to uh, somehow just keep it going a little bit. But anyways, just that whole full force balls to the wall attitude in college. Of course, I got into doing mushrooms and psychedelics and LSD and, you know, smoked DMT a few times and did all that stuff. Thought it was great. Loved it. We'd go see widespread panic as often as possible, you know, mostly in Atlanta or Birmingham. But the first time I ever went to rehab was the summer of 2010 after my junior year of college. And I had no idea what I was up against. I didn't think I was actually an addict. My family didn't think I was actually an addict. And that was for Oxycontins. I, um, I had tried an Oxycontin the first time, right around the time I graduated high school. I was actually at an IHOP in Midland, Texas, uh, going over. I was in AP physics, which is normally a junior's AP class, but I took it my senior year. And I was with this guy, Clay, and he was basically tutoring me uh, on physics because I had a big test the next day and yada, yada, yada. Uh, my buddy Garrett came by and I think I had his pipe like to smoke weed out of. So he wanted to come grab it so he could smoke. And he's like, hey, man, I'm here. Come meet me in the parking lot. I was like, OK, cool. And I went out there and he had on probably like a Bone Thug CD at I know it was a CD case, but I'm pretty sure it was a Bone Thug CD. <laughs> he was super fucked up. And he was like, hey, man, try this. And it was just a tiny sliver. It might have been five to 10 milligrams of Oxycontin, you know, chopped up in a line. I was like, oh, okay. And I snorted it. I have probably a dollar bill or straw or something. Doesn't matter. But by the time I got back inside to IHOP, which was, you know, 20 seconds later, I was just smiling. I was like, oh, fuck, here we go. You know, and I remember telling Clay, I was like, I can't feel my feet right now. Um, mm. And that was the first time I ever did a hard opiate. Uh, I'd done, you know, painkillers from wisdom teeth. And my buddy John, his sister had a surgery and we'd sometimes take him and drink beer and, you know, always loved it. It was great. But this was the first time it was like, oh, shit, like this took over. Mm -hmm. Anyways, fast forward to college. I didn't do one again for a long time, a long time, I don't know, five, six, seven months. And I would, me and my buddy Sloan, who's also like 12 years sober right now, him and I would get an 80 milligram Oxycontin and split it. And it would last us like two nights. We would just snort little bits off of it all weekend and just stay really high the whole time. And I did that, you know, once every couple months, did an Oxycontin for three years uh, or two years until I was a junior and it was no big deal. And then I got back from, I guess, summer break. I was in Midland and came back and, uh, you know, my, my friend Sloan was, uh, he was like, Hey, come try this. We're at my buddy Ian's house. We went upstairs and he had a piece of tinfoil and we smoked, uh, the Oxycontin off of the tinfoil, you know, got the smoke up with the straw. And oh, just yeah. that, that method and how strongly and quickly it hit me 
that's the moment where if there was an action reaction to becoming an addict, that was it. Uh, mm. It became, oh shit, I want to do this every day as much as I possibly can. And that's what I did, you know. Um, Question. Do you feel like it was the ritual of smoking it, snorting it, that type of thing that played a big part in becoming addicted? Well, clearly just that method of uh, delivery, the smoking versus snorting is so much quicker and stronger. Smoking, it's actually quicker than shooting it up. Um, no, I don't think that's what made me an addict. I just think that's what kind of pressed fast forward. Yeah. You know, that's when I, I was like, oh, shit, I'm home now. This is what I've been looking for. Yeah. I've been searching yeah. aggressively for years, not knowing it. And then when you find it, you're like, I didn't even know I was looking for this. But Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I want to share a little bit of my experience of the first time that I smoked heroin. I was 17, and it was like I, I walked in on one of my buddies who was he was like sitting down in his mom's bathroom, actually. Classic. Yeah, and he was just bent over, like smoking off a of tinfoil, and I saw that, and... At the time, we were taking a lot of clonopin because he had a prescription of to clonopin, uh, and I would take those, and it would just make me feel better in my skin. You know, it make me feel confident, it would make me feel funny and cool, and like I fit in, and all these different things. You know, so basically, when I saw him smoking heroin, I just like it was so dark, like it was like I knew that this was so fucking bad, but I, I wanted to try it. And I, and I literally, I was like, I'm going to try this. And if you try to tell me I'm not like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you or something, you know, like I'm going to, I'm going to try that. And so I did it and it was literally exactly what you said. Like, it was like, Oh my God, I'm home. I feel so good in my skin. I feel so relaxed and comfortable and at peace. And, and, and my mind is finally quiet. And I feel like I could do anything on this drug. And that's, that's what my experience was like. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, that, uh, you know, later that year, I was actually in Austin it was that summer. It was June of 2010. And I was in Austin. I wasn't living here. Oh, I was on Lake LBJ building a lake house for a family friend. Like they let me be on the crew for a summer job. Anyways, I um, was in Austin and we went to see MGMT at Stubbs. And I got, Jesus Christ, side note, like super. I ate a half ounce of mushrooms like in mm. one sitting before the show. There you go. Smoked an OC, did some Molly, got drunk, whatever. So that was kind of <laughs> where things were at at that point. You know, just super aggressive about all of it. Faded. Yeah. Um, I was not even aware I was at a concert, which is fine because MGMT Live sucks anyways. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, anyways, my uh, I overdrafted my Wells Fargo account, which at the time was connected. My parents could see it. You know, I was a college kid. They were giving me, you know, like, 
400 bucks a month to live on at the time, but I overdrafted it by like $300. And I remember telling my, my uh, God brother Hunter, who was with me, I was like, yeah, what's the worst that could happen? <laughs> and, <laughs> uh, that Monday morning, they might go to the lake and my boss, Jeff was like, Hey man, we need, we got to make a quick stop. And then I just thought it was kind of weird. Cause I showed up super late. I'd been in Austin the night before. Uh, buying an OC off some frat guy or something. And um, we're driving down the top of the hill, like LBJ down to the other lake house. And I see my mom's suburban and I'm like, is that my, uh, why am that's my parents? Like, and I just, my gut was like, this is not good. Mm. Um, so they were in there and they were, they were terrified, man. Um, They'd never dealt with this. I was their firstborn son. I was 21 years old. Um, and they were horrified. Not horrified like, how could you? But just like, honestly, so, so scared and afraid. And they, they gave me the option, like, you can either get on a plane to Arizona today and go to rehab or, you know, you're, you're cut off. There's no more allowance. There's no more paying for Auburn no car, no anything. And I was like, okay, what time's the flight? You know, um, that's an easy decision. And then when I got there, I, you know, I could admit to myself that maybe doing Oxycontin was a problem. Uh, I was blown away and a little offended and taken aback or whatever, just pure delusion that they wanted me to quit drinking, quit smoking pot, quit doing everything else I was doing. And, um, you know, it, it, Honestly, just where the little my family knew about addiction at the time, people were people I grew up with, my my parents, my brother, uh, they were like, yeah, I mean, if you could just not do Oxycontin, what's the problem? We're all drinking, we're all partying here. Not that my parents were partying. So I, I spent the next, basically, long story short, nine, ten years of my life trying to prove that theory and failing miserably, hurting a lot of people along the way. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that. And just, you know, when I first went to treatment for the first time at 19 years old, it was like, I knew that heroin was not the answer. And I knew that I, kind I of was, but <laughs> <laughs> I knew that heroin was destroying my life and was no longer the answer. Because, you know, it always starts out great. And that's how that's why addiction is so cunning and baffling because it 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 is the solution at first and then it just it starts tearing apart your life and you just become this you know monster you know and all you care about is that next high and you don't care who is gonna if, if anybody's gonna stand in your way it's like you're gonna you're gonna blow right through that person and you're gonna you know screw them over you're gonna hurt them you're gonna uh whatever right and when I went to treatment for the first time at 19, it was like I didn't want to get completely sober, but I did want to stop doing heroin, right? But I always had reservations for smoking weed, doing mushrooms, drinking, all of that stuff. And uh, yeah, that's 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 what it starts out as. And 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 you think that you know they're telling you like, oh yeah, well everybody's like that. They all they all have that same mindset and eventually you'll see like this is gonna gonna escalate and it's gonna get worse and worse and it's gonna become a huge problem for you if you don't 
if you're not completely abstinent. And yeah, yeah. which at the time, my adolescent aggressive partying mind couldn't even comprehend that. I couldn't begin to really take an honest look at the idea of not putting drugs or alcohol into my body. You know, sure, on paper, it made sense. Life would get better. But I could not comprehend what it truly meant to face life on life terms, grow up. And the idea of seeing success in this arena of staying completely sober, that was just, I don't think that thought even went into my head. Maybe some daydream of like, oh, I'll be famous one day and some just twisted bullshit in my head. Um, but beyond that, there was no serious consideration. And I see it so much now with other people in my life, you know, a couple of guys I sponsor and just, especially when I used to work in treatment, guys coming in and just the delusion being so strong. And I can relate so hard because I was that way. I wasn't even aware how wildly unaware I was, you know? So yeah, totally. Idiot. <laughs> yeah. The awareness, I feel it just isn't there at, in, at the beginning. You know, I feel like you really have to go through it and have some, some major uh, traumatic events in order to really wake up to the, to the fact that, that your life's unmanageable using, you know, your drug of choice, especially, but really any, any substance because we use to feel okay. You know, whereas, whereas some people, they use drugs to, I guess, experience life from a different consciousness temporarily, whereas we use just to be okay in our own skin, right? Can you kind of relate to that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, be okay in our own skin. Um, for me personally, it wasn't like I'm this traumatized victimized person in so much pain that once i did that i was finally okay uh, but once i did that i was beyond okay you know the only problem in my life prior to that or during that and sometimes still is my perception of life and my dependence on judging how where my life is by how i feel but that that overtaking you know in that repeated cycle for years and years and years my life will become so chaotic and fucked up that it really does start to be like, I have to have this just to, to breathe the next breath to, yeah, I have to do this rather than face the mountain of shitty choices I've made the last 10 years. Yeah. So yeah, a lot of, a lot of descriptive words in there. I kind of forgot where I was going with it too. <laughs> um, let's see. So we were talking about, how you have to have some traumatizing experiences before you really realize that you can't get high anymore, you know? Oh, that's right. That's right. So I believe it's in the NA book um, where it says we only change when the pain of remaining the same outweighs the fear of change. And, you know, real deal, Addicts like myself, that's a lot of, that goes from being a frat boy, snorting Oxycontin to, okay, now I'm 31 and I'm living in a really shitty car slash the Salvation Army. 
hanging out with homeless people, sharing needles with them, doing whatever I got to do to keep that going. But that, that, that pain of, I think that pain, whether we know it or not, can be a useful thing. Because if you're serious about wanting that pain to stop, you're one day in your early recovery and even later in it, you're going to have to acknowledge that this is going to be a painful process. This isn't always going to feel good. And my times in early recovery, honestly, were amazing. But most of the time, that gnawing uncomfortability was there constantly and it sucked. And if I'm still in the delusion that my life is based, the value of my life is based on how I feel, I will never be able to convert over to, okay, I'm going to have to endure some shit to get over this hump, which is now luckily after years of trying this, failing this, trying this, failing this, having years of sobriety, losing it. Um, I'm finally at a level of understanding and having appreciation for facing adversity head on as selflessly as possible. And a great way to start that is taking care of my body, what I put in it, what I put in my mind and my ears, um, you know, just saying, fuck the bullshit. I want to embrace difficulty head on. And my experience doing that repeatedly, my life has become incredibly peaceful and serene and I'm finding more purpose, meaning and just excitement about the path, man. Like, you know, all the whatever you call it, you know, bullshit glitz and glam of being like, oh, he was a heroin addict. That must be an interesting story. To me, that heroin part, the homelessness part, the needles part, the being out of veins part still is uh, that's just everyone's experience is almost the same. It's just different places, different faces. I'm so much more excited about the getting on with life and finding out why God let me survive all that. Like I'm still here for a reason and it's not just to chill and have a fucking mediocre life, you know, and it's exciting. I'm incredibly fortunate. And so are you that we come from good families and have people in our corner that care about us and have bodies that can endure the things we put them through. Um, to take that deeper look at life, you know, that we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast and just fucking rock and roll, you know, like let's, yeah, let's embrace difficulty and see what we're made of. Absolutely. Yeah. I've always felt like through my recovery that, you know, we were almost chosen to endure addiction in order to be of service to people in this life at a greater level, you know, mm -hmm. in order to really kind of surrender to God's will and sacrifice our self-will so that we can do what God has for us, which will ultimately be, you know, so much more fulfilling. Yeah. Yeah, 100%, man. It's that peeling the onion back another layer, another layer and finding a deeper meaning in our everyday existence. Like back to the positive domino effect that I just saw everyone else seemingly take. I mean, everyone has difficulties and it's not easy for anybody, but you know, the ABCs 
of everyone I grew up with, like their life, graduating, getting engaged, getting married, career, job, kids, all that stuff just seemingly happened in a normalistic American, quote unquote, you know, the way it is. But you and I and millions of other people had these diverted, fucked up, crazy, chaotic paths that were nobody's fault but our own. And coming back from that and realizing there is um, something special about it, but that doesn't make us, you know, like, oh, I'm special. Like people who walk around and, <laughs> you know, I'm sober now. Look at me and all that shit. Like there is something to be said for that. But my brother, who is long-term sober too, and watched me be an idiot for so long, um, he was like, yeah, you shouldn't have been doing that shit in the first place. Like, welcome to life. Let's go. <laughs> I know, right? It's so true. It's so it's like, true. Oh, yeah, I'll, I'll just shut the fuck up. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Let's do this. <laughs> I know. I find myself all the time, like, talking about and identifying with my past so much and, and feeling sorry for myself and and all this shit. And it's like, you know... I'm the fucking idiot that decided to put a needle in my arm and shoot up heroin and crystal meth. Like I got myself into this shit, you know, like I'm selfish and I'm, you know, weak and lazy and, and just totally self-centered for being a drug addict, you know, like, like that's my fault. It's like, yeah, and you know, it's not like weak and lazier things we're proud of. Because I'm the same way. If I'm unconsciously basing my life on how much pleasure I can have, how comfortable I can be, that's when the actions of being, you know, seemingly weak or lazy, all those things, because my mind will lie to me and tell me, oh, it feels better to lay in bed. You know, it feels mm. better to just watch TV. It feels better to eat fucking Whataburger. Mm. You know, and back to that you know, journey we're on, like probably why this podcast exists, the be powerful, you know, let's see what we're made of, face some difficult shit and have some delayed gratifications far better than number five at Whataburger with no tomato. I don't think I know. <laughs> oh my God. That's great, dude. <laughs> and I still, I mean, dude, I'm 34. A minute. Yeah, me too. It's been not years, but months. Wasn't as good as it used to be, but anyways, we're getting sidetracked. Dude, it's not as good as it used to be. It's, <laughs> it's fucking me, bullshit. It's okay? fucking bullshit. It's like heroin, dude. <laughs> Started off great. Now it fucking sucks. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> no, but you're saying you're 34 and? Yeah, I'm 34. And uh, really the last year of my life is when, you know, I've had bits and pieces of this mindset over previous attempts at recovery little insights into getting really as physically fit as I 31. I was as physically fit as I'd ever been in my life before now. And I thought I had it made, you know, but I was getting physically fit for the wrong reasons. It was all vanity and ego. And once again, I made that mistake of basing the quality of my life and my internal condition is who, and who I view myself as, as a person on how I was feeling. And I can do the same shit and fool myself in the gym or the pool or whatever that just because I'm facing this one difficult situation, the end result is still me looking good, looking in the mirror, doing all these things. And I still think, I mean, I know that's a huge part of my early morning workouts 
putting myself in a painful situation to start the day is a good mindset to adopt into the rest of life. But when I'm solely doing that stuff and mistaking it for living a good life, uh, I'm in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. I can, I can relate to that a lot. Like, you know, killing myself in the gym and, and being really hard on myself for how, like what my appearance is and stuff. And, and honestly carrying my addictive mindset into the gym and still being miserable, but just like, oh, I'm going to fucking hit this workout super hard so that I, you know, so that I feel good about myself at the end of the day, even though I'm fucking miserable. Oh, yeah. You know? Absolutely. You know, it's it's the best way to wake my brain up, wake my body up. And at the very most, as far as vanity and stuff goes, it does create confidence. I do hit the world better when I know I'm in good shape and I'm good looking. And that creates necessary confidence for a lot of situations. But if I take it for more than that, and it's just this one catch myself from every angle in a reflective window throughout the day, and my looks are more important than what I'm actually doing in the world, then yeah, yeah not yeah. good. And of course, back to when I was 31, surprise, surprise, I relapsed after a year sober. You know? mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I feel like uh, now my uh, relationship with movement and fitness and just exercise in general is like, I'm doing it to connect with my body. I'm doing it to release energy that doesn't serve me in an intentional way. I'm doing it to feel better, not to feel like I got hit by a train because I worked out for two hours, but just to feel better and feel lighter on my feet, have that you know, dopamine rush to where I feel a little bit more relaxed and confident and just better in my skin. And now I'm able to tackle and I have more energy. I have more mental focus. Mm -hmm. My, my brain, the, you know, blood circulating better. My brain's working better. Absolutely. It's just to do, it's just to feel better, not to feel okay. Does that mm -hmm. make does that make sense? Like like what absolutely is like uh, feel better to approach the world in a more productive manner versus I'm doing this so I'm okay in my own skin, which is the same same thing as addiction. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, like I um, used to hit, just hit a hit a workout for two hours. I was on steroids. You know, I was still putting needles in my body just in a different way, and then it was like the rest of the day I would just pig out unhealthy food and just lay around on the couch all day because I yeah. felt like I was so accomplished because I just hit this crazy workout. Yeah. When really I was just coping. It was just another coping mechanism. Straight up. I'm certainly guilty of that in the past and probably at times still am. You know, if I don't stay connected to this you know, as a podcast, we have to be anonymous, but my 12-step my fellowship, the guys I work with on an intimate basis, doing the work, self-discovery, finding my usefulness to the world, I'm fucked. Yeah. My brain can, without my knowledge, switch back several times a day even to we're being run on the stimuli of this meat suit 
And is it feeling good? Are we okay? Are things okay? You know, um, to me, the biggest challenge now, and I don't like facing it head on all the time is, you know, becoming a man in the sense of, you know, I've got the chest hair and the muscles and all that bullshit, but becoming a man in the sense like, do I have the discipline after a full day's work to come home and I have to write three more estimates and deal with an upset client and face all the stuff that I know you saw your dad face and I saw my dad face with grace and ease and sometimes get pissed off about it. But like, that's just the way it was. My new big workouts are, can I do all this tedious, boring shit that seemingly I for years thought didn't matter? And now it's just, you know, it's what all my friends who had ABCD work out. Like that's what they were doing in college. They were going to class doing a lot of shit they didn't want to do all the tedious, dry, monotonous uh, processes of life, if you will. Mm-hmm. And now they're really good at it. And now I want to not only catch up to that, but exceed it. You know, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate. I don't have any brain damage from overdoses. Um, I'm not in prison. You know, I, I'd like to believe I'm somewhat intelligent. And uh, yeah, I want to see, like I said earlier, why why did God have me survive all that? Like, why did I get to be so selfish, damage so many people and make it, you know, seemingly unscathed, even though I've got scars and shit on my face, but you know, like I'm still here for a damn good reason. And I'm really passionate and adamant about finding out what that is. And I know it's not for me, you know? Yeah. It's for, you know, I feel like everyone's, purpose in this life is to kind of surrender to the ways that they think that they should live this life or the things that they think that they need that will fulfill them and, you know, surrender to the idea that maybe just listening to your heart and listening to God, if you will, spirit, um, your higher self, maybe that is what is going to be the guiding force. And maybe that's what's going to, um, you know, give you the fulfillment that you need in this life in order to feel successful. Yeah. A big, uh, you know, I'm sure you have a similar or a process in the morning, but in the 12 step fellowships, making conscious contact every morning with the power greater than ourselves to get out of self is huge and a prayer I used to do a lot that I'm implementing back in is um, I ask God to give me the awareness to see and do the things he would have me see and do to become the man he created me to be. Mm. You know, if I can expand my awareness a little bit, a little bit and just see what the fuck God put in front of me that day, that is leaps and bounds and miles ahead of what I did for so many years. And like it says in the book, you know, God doesn't make too difficult terms for those who honestly seek him. I am finding that to be abundantly true. Um, and I heard in a, in a really good speaker talk, you know, making conscious contact every morning. I used to think it had to be this process and I've got to really feel it. And I've got to back to depending on how I feel to my perception of the world being so innerly connected. But he put it as, when I make conscious contact, am I consciously aware that God saved my life and it's not about me anymore? Um, and that that was huge because I would base entire days or weeks off of, well, I didn't really get, you know, that feeling I was looking for. Well, that's fucking most of life, you know. Mm. Um, 
But the sooner I dive into the hard work, the sooner my life takes off in ways I couldn't have even imagined. Big time, dude. I've seen that so much in this last eight months of my sobriety and just how like for a while I didn't put the time into meditating or praying. I wasn't totally conscious. I wasn't making that conscious contact with God every single day. And it really is just as simple as if I'm going through something difficult during the day, like just imagine myself like holding hands with Jesus or, you know, I'm just comforted by some angels or I'm, you know, just imagining what the creator of the universe would look like. And I'm just, you know, kind of trying to visualize that in my head or something throughout the day. And I'm looking at the trees and I'm thanking God for, you know, the leaves on the trees and the wind and the sun and the grass and and, and everything. And just being super grateful for this whole experience and being 100% conscious of it and conscious of the fact that it's not just me. I have this support that is available through faith. Yeah, I think it's uh, even to expand even out further, you know, because I definitely still struggle with relying on how I feel versus how I perceive the world, having those so connected. But, you know, as far as human beings go, um, the history of conscious awareness on this planet from a human being, it has only been five minutes and the lifetime of how long we know the earth is to be basically five minutes of where there's been life where we can have preferences and choices and it's not this brutal fight for survival you know so the more i can remember that i'm like oh yeah like what 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 am i bitching about you know um you know what i'm trying to say yeah uh ramdas puts it you know the the age of individualism you know there's finally been within 100 years enough food, enough resources, uh, enough things to support society on a grand scale that there, we have time now for leisure and pleasure. And what am I into? And who am I? And all these things that, you know, our grandparents or great grandparents now would probably be like, are you fucking kidding? Shut up. There's stuff to do. Yeah. <laughs> There's shit to do. Um, so I think that's good. I don't think, I know that's healthy perspective to face life on because I don't have all the answers are any for that matter, but our entire American society is turned into this soft pleasure driven instantaneous. It, yeah, you know what I'm trying to say? I do know what you're trying to say. It's not good. It's not good. So yeah, yeah, we're, yeah, we're living in this world that is designed around pleasure, you know, Mm -hmm. and we get used to feeling good from all the different things that make us feel good. And we think that we're just supposed to feel good all the time, like through technology, they're just making it so easy to feel good constantly to have, you know, whatever show you want to watch right there on the palm of your hands to have whatever food you want delivered to your house. You want, I mean, anything, drugs, alcohol, anything delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, poison available everywhere 
Yeah, we really have to look out. I mean, it takes diligent work to not be poisoning yourself on a regular basis to survive. Yeah. The majority of food out there, the standard American diet, SAD, you know, you know what I'm saying? Sad. Mm-hmm. It's true. I, I feel so bad for people. I mean, I, I've been a fat guy, so I have, you know, somewhat of a right to <laughs> not be a fan of that. But I see so many people who, by the time they realize what's going on with their body and their life and just health and all this shit, they, it's like they never had a choice. And it's, it's, it's really heartbreaking because the awareness, the spirit inside of everyone's the same as, as it is in me. There's different circumstances and filtration systems, our bodies and minds and personalities to experience what's coming in. But at the end of the day, that's the same awareness that feels hurt or sad or joy or love. You know, it's all connected. And it's, it breaks my heart that the majority of Americans in the world probably now is just uh, completely shut off from embracing difficulty. Um, And I think we were extreme cases of that, taking it past the cheeseburgers to the needle. But yeah, you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Yeah. Let's circle back to, you were talking about the work that you have to do on a daily basis and that we do in recovery in order to maintain conscious contact with God. What does that work look like for you? So it starts with uh, my morning routine. You know, I'm up at six, brush my teeth, I pee, drink a bottle of water, and then I go back to my room and I pray on my knees at the side of my bed, which I thought for years nobody actually did. People just say that to sound good, but then I had a sponsor strongly recommend I did it a few years ago and little, you know, to my surprise, things started happening. Anyways, I do that. I pray for the awareness to see what God would have me do that day to, to uh, be the man he created me to be. And then the work looks like a lot of different things. You know, it starts with being honest with myself, honest with everyone around, you know, it sounds cheesy, but if I see trash, pick it up. RFK Jr., the new presidential Democratic candidate, he's long-term sober, and he talks about how, in his experience, if he can take care and control of what he has control over, like, is he going to litter? Is he going to be nice? Is he going to be honest? Is he going to hold the door open? All these little things, it says, if I can take care of the little things, God can take care of the big ones. And I was like, yep, exactly. You know, It's just like diet and exercise. All these little things we do over time create these massive results. But beyond that, um, I stay in touch with my sponsor. I do inventory, not all the time, but you know, I really need to put pen to paper, see how am I showing up to life? For me, it's not about who wronged me and why they did it and how can I see the truth? You know, that is a part of it, sure. But more so, how am I showing up to situations? What lies was I telling myself? What did I want from this? You know, why did I engage in this in the first place? What did I want? Was I clear with my intentions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, But most importantly, I've found the most relief and freedom and that kind of that second wave of joy and recovery coming from sponsoring other guys, Mm. showing them what people showed me, you know, and trying to do the best I can to stick to the way it works to how it works because it, it really is it's fucking 
nothing short of total magic and gives my life a sense of awe and wonder. I'm not just some guy with the mundane comings and goings of what it takes to be a you know, businessman in America. But okay, there is something going on here I can't explain. I can't even see it. I can see it at work in my life. But that interaction and that growth along the path is just, it's miraculous. Yeah, that's been my experience with working the steps. So for the listeners, what we're kind of talking about is the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, we'll say. Um, <laughs> I mean, me and Jack are heroin users, so we'll say heroin anonymous. But uh, no, that doesn't matter. Basically, there's there's different anonymous programs. There's heroin anonymous. There's cocaine anonymous. There's alcoholics anonymous. There's oh, yeah. sex and love addicts anonymous. Which which Jack and I which Jack and I, <laughs> I was trying to say. Do you remember when we went to that meeting? <laughs> and uh, anyways, it's a wonderful program, but it just wasn't where we yeah. needed to be. Yeah, for <laughs> sure. Um, anyway, so. We're talking about the work that we do in the 12 steps. And basically what it looks like is kind of admitting that you have an issue, that you're, that you're powerless over your addiction, um, that you believe in a power greater than yourself. So you believe in God, we'll say, that you're willing to let God restore you to sanity. And then you go into what's called the fourth step inventory, which Jack was mentioning earlier when he says he writes inventory. Kind of what that means is you admit to any sort of resentments that you've had throughout your life and, and what your part, what that resentment looks like, who you resent, what you resent, why you resent them or it. And kind of look at your part in the whole resentment. Most importantly, our part. Um, Most importantly. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then, and then we talk about, you know, we, we write about our fears and stuff and, and some of the fears that have uh, controlled our lives and have, you know, caused a lot of just unmanageability in our lives. And, that's basically called taking inventory, right? That's that's kind of what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And then that is read aloud to a sponsor or someone you trust, but it's your sponsor. Right. Um, all the while they're taking notes of these character defects, these traits maybe we can't see that we need to be made aware of. You know, For me, mine are always thinking I'm better than, talking shit, gossiping procrastination, laziness. Uh, the last time I did some inventory, my sponsor wrote victim. And I was like, fuck you, buddy. No. <laughs> but, you know, seeing our behaviors, we can't see all the angles of it. We just see the immediate, this is how it affected how I was feeling, back to how we fucking feel. Uh, but seeing victim written down on paper about the way I behaved, really, that'll, that'll change you, you know? And if it doesn't, that's a problem. Yeah. Isn't it, isn't it wild how they say in recovery, like self can't see self, which is so true because you really start to, I'm literally getting chills just talking about this because 
that is the magic of working the 12 steps is that you start to see all these resentments that you have. And as you're reading it out to your sponsor, you're starting to see your part in it. And you're like, okay, well, I'm the cause of this. Nine times out of 10, you're the cause of it. All your fears, you realize they've, they've come from, you know, different life events that you maybe perceived uh, yeah, with, a, with, with a victim mindset, with a selfish mindset, with, a, you know, all these different. So it's like the character defects. I hate the word character defects, but it is, you know, it's, it's, it's valid. It is the reasons valid. why we're pussies now. Yeah, 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 exactly. And, and so when your sponsor, you know, talks to you about your character defects, it really puts things into perspective and you're really like, wow, yeah, I was a fucking, you know, just manipulative piece of shit. I was, well, we won't, we won't go down the rabbit hole of, of character assassinations, but I was manipulative. I was lying. I was, you know, being a victim. I was feeling sorry for myself. I was being selfish, you know, all these different things that, that we maybe would never ever see unless we told our story to somebody else. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that, that that's, that's the magic of, of recovery and the, and the 12 steps and, and this kind of magical transformation that leads you to a connection with God that they say, like, you know, people who don't believe in, in God and stuff, they say, well, work the steps first. Have you worked all 12 steps? Work the steps and see if you have a freaking transformative experience and then tell me if you believe in God or not, you know? Yeah. And it goes back to that endurance to pain that we can build up while we're out there running amok in the world. You know, we don't know it, but life gets really painful and we're willing to put up with it. If we can transfer that over into, okay, now it's gone. I'm extremely uncomfortable. This sucks. Um, it's so rare. There are the one and done people that they just get it from the start. But in my experience, your experience, a lot of people's experience, it takes us tapping out a few times to go feel more pain, coming back and being willing to sit through the uncomfortability to see that process unfold. Right. Which is a lifelong process, by the way. Totally. As you know. Yes, definitely. And then, you know, another part of the work is making amends and going back to all the people that you've wronged in your lifetime and telling them how you harm them and asking what you can do to make things right. Like how powerful yeah. of a process was that for you? Extremely. Uh, I've had periods of sobriety in the past, which I lost where I made, you know, made amends to my parents and my brother and, you know, yada, yada, yada. And then just kind of let it go from there. I, once again, back to the perception of how I feel. What's my comfortability level? I got a little bit of relief. And I'm like, oh, I'm good. Back to the procrastination, laziness, all that shit. Well, this is good enough, you know. Not seeing my true worth, value, and potential. Shutting it off there is not an immediate shutting off growth. It actually is, but it's a pretty much a recipe for going back out. So now I've been very serious about my financial amends. You know, uh, I forget who said it and exactly how they said it, but 
it might have been Bob Daryl. Uh, you know, we truly can't move forward until we've righted the wrongs of our past. It's just one of those universal laws. And thank God it is, you know, it's not just a one and done, you screwed up, it's over. But in my experience, the longer I stay at these financial amends, um, the more people I actively seek out to just not tell them I'm sorry, but hey, I acknowledge the pain I caused you and my actions were completely selfish and wrong. There's energy exchange. There's healing in that. You know, the universe is never, it doesn't ever shut its eyes. You know, this is an interactive, immersive experience the whole time. You know, um, this layer of skin doesn't separate us from it. It's part of it. So, yeah, my experience with that, especially in this last year, has been, you know, nothing short of profound. Yeah, me too. And... I've only made amends to my dad. <laughs> and that was, that was magical. I still haven't done an official amends to anybody else. My brother, sister, mom, dad's girlfriend, people that I owe money to, some drug dealer that I owe $2,500 to, like, you know, all these different things that I can't even, that I can't necessarily, like financial amends that I can't quite make yet that I plan to one day make because I know that every approach that I make for amends, there's exactly what you said. There's an opportunity there for healing on both parties. There's a, there's a door that God wants to open and it could be in a completely different area of my life. You know what I mean? It's like I make amends to somebody I fucked over a couple of years ago and then something else completely unrelated opens up in my life. But it's like, I know in my heart, like, oh yeah, that door opened because I made that right with that, with that person that I, you know, fucked over a while ago. Yeah. So I, um, I would highly encourage, recommend that regardless of the amount owed and the amount you have, uh, give them something, start that process. I am almost done with one of my financial amends. It was, I believe $2,800 to a guy I used to work for. And I've been giving him, you know, hundred bucks every time I get paid for months now. And we're, we're almost there. But when I started this process, I, my internal condition and my state of mind was in a lot of pain. I was in a lot of turmoil and a lot of that stuff that comes up with me growing up in my 30s, you know, all the shit I put off for so many years is not a painful awakening. Being in my 30s and trying to right the wrongs and have a mindset that's capable of functioning in the world. But anyways, I think I had, I had some money come in like $330. I probably had 11 bucks in my bank account when that money came in. I immediately sent 100 to Bobby, my former employer, and, you know, I had to get to work. I had to pay a little bit of rent to sober living, et cetera, et cetera. But when I gave a significant chunk of my money, you know, that's not that it's money that does it, but money's one of those tangible energy exchanges in the universe to where mm -hmm. I don't know what happened, but it was such a necessary jolt to my attitude and outlook that I was able to keep going, keep wanting to do it better, keep growing. 
it was huge because I was not in a good spot. You know, it was very painful. Yeah. Um, I'm so glad yeah. you said that because yeah, don't let any amount in the account hold you back. Totally. Yeah. I'm glad you said that because I really do need to make an approach um, with someone in specific that I'm thinking of right now. And yeah, I'm going to do that after, after we finish up. Uh, with that being said, it is, I know you have to, you got to get going soon. Well, let's, let's I'd say we, up. we yeah, we're yeah. at a men's. Yeah, we'll wrap it up. The, finish out the 12, you know. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's finish out the 12 steps. But 10, let's... 11, and 12 are basically taking a daily inventory of how did we behave in the world that day? What were wins? What were losses? What could I do better? Do I own amends? It's a constant kind of pen to paper on how we're doing. You know, let's see this process through. And then it's praying and meditating, listening, you know, not just talking, 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 but listening to the universe and the universe. And my God, he never speaks to me in English, you know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but there are answers in the silence. There are answers through other people, uh, through situations when I can expand my awareness and get quiet. And then number 12 is what I was talking about earlier, that passing the message, sponsoring others, showing guys how this happened for me as best I can. Yeah. Yeah, my experience uh, working with sponsees has been nothing short of just totally fucking profound, you know, because it really does remind you of where you were. And then it's just a really amazing place to be on the other end of it of like, okay, now I get to share my experience and support this person through what they're going through and show them how I got to where I got and also be supported by them. My sponsees are so supportive of me. They they're there for me when I need to, to talk, you know, it's yeah. not just a one way street. It's like my sponsees are, are very, you know, very emotionally available for me as well. I've heard things come out of my mouth that I didn't plan on saying, which I was like, holy shit, that came out of me. You know, clearly it was a little higher power download, but totally hearing things come out of my mouth surprised me in a very positive way. That gives me like, okay, I can do this. I can be a man. I can be successful. You know, so moments like that are huge too. Yeah. Like if you can tell somebody else to do it, then you're like, okay, well, if I'm telling my sponsee to call me, but I'm not calling my sponsor, like that doesn't yeah. that doesn't sound, you know, I gotta I gotta practice what I preach. And yeah, it just it just, you know, when you are um when somebody else is kind of relying on you to support them and guide them, it definitely helps you be stronger in your own in your own program, in your own work, you know? Yeah, exactly. I think that goes for any, any area of life, like a coach to client relationship. You know, it's like if you're guiding clients on a journey, you're going to be more likely to be doing the things that you need to do in order to fill your cup so that you can be of maximum service to your client. Straight up. You know? So... 
yeah, I'd say we kind of wrap it up with um, just a little bit about like what your life looks like today as a result of your recovery, what you've, what are some of the biggest takeaways that you've had in addiction and recovery and maybe just like one thing that you would say um, is like your philosophy of life. So, okay. Takeaway from addiction, selfishness and self-centeredness causes, creates weak men. Um, you know, that wake of pain and chaos is goes far beyond just us and affects other people most often more so than it does us. Uh, takeaways from recovery. That's a good question. I mean, obviously there's just so much growth and profound knowledge and suiting up, showing up and getting out of ourselves to be of service to the world and our fellows. Mm. That's what it's all about. And my philosophy on life. Um, <laughs> this yeah. all kind of goes together. It, it sure does. Like I, I'm excited about growth. I'm excited about seeing who God would have me be every day. That's my philosophy on life, I think. It's amazing. Yeah, it really is, you know, it really is a beautiful thing to experience the the presence that we've uh that we've gained as a result of working the 12 steps and being an active member, I suppose you could say, in, in recovery, you know. It's been amazing for me and I just never I never imagined like I'm like I'm eight months sober now and this is actually the longest eight months and some change the longest that I've ever been sober and uh it's really like things are really changing in my life you know and I'm starting to feel the obsession to use is really going away and I never imagined that I would stop thinking about, you know, I, I've always, I've always had hope for being able to stop thinking about putting a needle in my arm, but I, and I've only had that hope from seeing, from, from listening to other people that have long-term sobriety and them talking about how much their life has changed but I've never really truly experienced it for myself because in the past I haven't right. I haven't, I haven't made my wrongs right. I haven't worked with other people. Like I haven't sponsored other people. I haven't been consistent with the work of recovery and I haven't, you know, made amends and done all the things that the steps suggest and this time I have, and it's, it's, it's a world of difference, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it all boils down to awareness and action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, dude, this was a great talk. Yeah. I, I love, agree, man. I love the direction that it just kind of organically went, you know? Yeah. hundred percent. I, um, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for having me on, man. It's great. Dude. Absolutely. 
I'm really grateful that that you were able to do this. Me too. Me too. I know my listeners are going to be excited to uh, hear about this one because I think there's some there's some solid uh, wisdom in this episode. You know, there's some sauce in this bad boy. Ooh, there's some fucking sauce. Don't get lost in the sauce. <laughs> All right, my dude. Well, we'll close this off. Um, thank you for uh, being on the show, my brother. Yeah, thank you, Brian. Absolutely. Later. Take care. <laughs>